This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Golden Edge Podcast is sponsored by SDN Sports from Station Casinos. SDN Sports is the only sports betting app you need this season. Sign up today and get a new sign-up bonus of up to $50. What is up, hockey fans? This is the Golden Edge Podcast, the podcast for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Talks about hockey. I am Ben Goats, and on the other line is my colleague David Shane in lovely Boston this morning. Dave, how's it going? Awesome. Awesome. Week and a half on the road. I'm all geared up, just about ready to go to St. Louis for the All-Star Game, you know. Yeah, Dave is going to be on his way to St. Louis very shortly because the Golden Knights are starting, uh, most of them anyway, are starting a uh, nice week off here after they lost 3-2 to two to the Boston Bruins on Tuesday night. We're recording Wednesday morning. Before we talk more about that game and some other Knights games, we want to remind you that the Golden Edge podcast is presented by STN Sports Mobile from Station Casinos. Make sure to also like, subscribe, whatever you do with your podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And check out all our written work at ReviewJournal.com. Uh, I'm sorry for interrupting you there, Dave. Are you uh, very excited to pack your bags for uh, lovely St. Louis this January? Yeah, you know, should be fun time. Uh, whenever uh, the All-Star game gets going, it's always uh, lots of festivities and events and different things going on. It was, been pretty cool the last couple of years but uh i gotta say <laughs> i'm pretty ready to come home i'm uh it's been a long week with with everything with the coaches and everything else going on and four games and all that sort of uh all that sort of stuff so i think uh once i get back and uh get to vegas it'll be nice to uh catch my breath a little bit yeah so we obviously recorded an emergency podcast adam uh hill and myself after the Golden Knights fired Jordan Glant last week after their loss to the Buffalo Sabres and then hired former Sharks coach Peter DeBoer to lead them. Uh, Dave, you were just all over the place that day, so we couldn't really figure out a good time to get you on. But since we haven't really gotten your thoughts yet, just how surprised were you by the move and what's it been like kind of being around this team that's now all of a sudden in flux? Yeah, I was very, very odd. Um the way everything kind of happened, just to give you like uh, my personal account of everything. I was on a plane in Buffalo headed to Philadelphia en route to Ottawa. I was literally in the plane pulling away from the gate and got, you know, like a text or a, or a tweet kind of notification, I guess, uh, from the Golden Knights. And all I saw on the top of my phone was... Gerard Gallant relieved of 
duties, and then it, I didn't see everything. And my first reaction was, holy bleep, like what the, you know, totally stunned. Then I opened it up and I looked at it and I saw a big picture of Peter DeBoer. And I went, oh, okay, well, that's a joke. Like their account got hacked. This is like not real, you know, not hiring Peter DeBoer. Like, come on. As much as, a, as it was a shock that Gerard Glant was fired, it, uh, there was a piece of me that at least could, you know, kind of wrap my head around that. I, you know, surprised and certainly not something that I guess I would have done had I been in Kelly McCrimmon or George McPhee's shoes, but I guess it was understandable. But the, the, the biggest surprise of me was just that Peter DeBoer was the one who was hired, knowing the history, the rivalry, kind of all that stuff, knowing, you know, maybe other coaches that were out there available at the time and things like that. Soon after that, I got a text message that kind of confirmed everything. So at that point, yeah, I was scrambling to uh, to try to get a hold of you and try to get a hold of the bosses and get everything figured out. And then I was on like a little puddle jumper plane. Um, actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, let me go back. I was in Philadelphia on the way to Ottawa. So it was a little like kind of you know, two, two seat, two aisle kind of plane, no Wi-Fi. So I was basically like trapped in a box for like a good hour while all this chaos was going, going on um, and everything kind of swirling around. So, I mean, I would imagine I was no different than everybody else. It was, it came out of left field. It was a complete surprise. I know in talking to, you know, just folks around the team, kind of members of the organization and things like that, nobody had, had any inkling that this was coming. None of the players, none of the staff, n- nothing. You know, everybody basically was notified Wednesday morning and, you know, on they went from that point. So first couple of days were definitely very weird. There was a, I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to say a black cloud because I think that's, that's probably, probably a little bit too strong of a characterization, but it was just, you could tell everybody had just, walked or you know was walking around like they'd just been punched in the gut i mean everybody was wearing it on their sleeve it was very obvious you know in practice in the next morning skate and things like that as it's kind of gone on it's still a little weird to see peter DeBoer show up for a media kind of availability wearing a golden knight's hat and a pullover and things like that i don't know how used to that i am and definitely after the first game when the PR staff came through the the locker room and said, Coach Pete will be available in two minutes. Hearing Coach Pete was was just a little odd. But I think as it's gone on here a little bit in the last couple of days, it seemed a little bit more normal. And then I think coming out of the break, once everybody kind of has a chance, I think, to really sort of digest everything and, you know, sort of decompress, I guess, from the last week, you know, at that point, I think it'll feel a little bit more more normal. I'm just very curious to see the reception that Peter DeVore gets during that February 8th game against uh, Carolina. Yeah, but you bring up the date. I was about to talk about that, the February 8th date. It's interesting hearing, you know, for me to hear you talk about all these things because, of course, I've been in Las Vegas this entire time. I'm so far removed from the situation where I'm just seeing from afar. And of course, I'm reading all your stories on ReviewJournal.com. I'm watching Peter DeBoer's press conferences and everything. But me, and I believe I'm speaking for a lot of fans here, are not actually around the change so far. So it's been very kind of weird to observe 
all these things taking place in far off uh, places like Ottawa, like Montreal, and of course, in last night, Boston, and to have all of these kind of surprising things play out. And then another thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is the kind of, you know, you said there was a black cloud hanging over and the organization and then said, well, maybe not. I mean, the crazy thing is, is there's no time for clouds to even form here because, of course, the day after Glenn gets fired and Peter DeBoer gets hired, well, Peter DeBoer is holding his introductory press conference. He's meeting the players and then he's saying, oh, yeah, now we got to go play the Ottawa Senators tonight. And then, of course, they jet set to Montreal, got to play a game there. Peter DeBoer, you know, trying frantically to make at least some tweaks to some of their systems, which will certainly get into what he's doing on the penalty kill and maybe with how he's kind of deploying his lines and defensive pairs now. And then, of course, right after that, you know, a very emotional game, which they lost in overtime, but certainly played well just to get it to overtime in Montreal. They go to Boston against one of the best teams in the NHL in you know, a very tough building to play in, you know, lose a third period lead, don't get any points out of that game. And then all of a sudden it's like, all right, cool. We're just done there. Of course, I have a week off and I would have to imagine after kind of what this team's been through in the last week or so, especially on the road. And then of course, we've obviously well documented how kind of the end of the homestand didn't seem to be exactly a happy time for this team. I think these players, you know, already were looking forward to the break kind of at the end of the homestand. Now I would have to imagine they really just want to be done with hockey for a while. Yeah. And that was one of the questions that we had kind of asked, you know, in the last couple of days was, you know, is this coming at the right time? Are you more looking forward to the mental break or the physical aspect of it? I think everybody just, you know, everybody in that locker room basically said, we need a break. <laughs> you know, anytime you get a break, it's good. But I think especially just now, you know, yeah, they've got some bumps and bruises. Guys like William Carlson and Cody Glass are obviously out and, you know, getting closer to return. But I think everybody just needs to go clear their head right now. It's been it's been a crazy week. I mean, even Peter DeBoer talked about it. He, could, he didn't even have a suit in Ottawa. I mean, he, he was down in Florida in, like, shorts and flip-flops, walking around, you know, with his family, looking at condos potentially to buy down there. You know, he didn't have skates. He didn't have a stick. He showed up like 20 minutes after the the morning skate on Thursday. Um, I mean, it's just for everybody involved, it's just been a complete and utter whirlwind for, you know, the last week or so. So I think everybody just needs to, you know, kind of like I had written, scatter to the wind, get away from hockey for a little bit, you know, whether that's with family, girlfriends, you know, mom, dad, whoever it is. I think everybody just needs to kind of, get away and reset. And as far as this coming at the the right time, yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine it being a better time and, and all that. And, you know, the other side of this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it is, is the on ice stuff that Peter DeBoer now has a chance to sit down with his assistant coaches, Ryan Craig, Ryan McGill, goalie coach, Dave Pryor, and, and really kind of just, you know, set some things out, get a plan going forward, get on the same page, how they're going to kind of handle things, you know, for the last 30 games here, Peter, Peter DeBoer talked about, you know, they, they were fortunate when he came in that they had some practice time during this road trip. When they come out of this break, they start a back to back. So boom, right away, two games, they'll have that Thursday when everybody's kind of just coming back and getting their legs and things like that. So I don't know how much they can really do there, but as far as, you know, really being able to implement things and, 
and all that sort of stuff. That's kind of been what this week has been about. He he talked about, you know, wanting to sort of plant seeds and, and things like that, put some things in their mind so that they're thinking about it a little bit over the next nine days. And then when they come back, I think we'll start to see a little bit more of, of Peter DeBoer's stamp and kind of fingerprints all over this team. Yeah, they have one practice before that back-to-back against Carolina and Nashville. So you would anticipate a lot of board work for Peter DeBoer during that practice. Yeah, and I just want to underscore, before we kind of get into the specific on-ice stuff, you know, when we talk about how much of a whirlwind this has been for the players, uh, it's probably been a whirlwind, as you mentioned, for Peter DeBoer too, not just because, you know, he thought he was lining up a condo in Florida, but then all of a sudden he's got to fly to Ottawa. He's scrambling. And, you know, he claims that the deal with the Knights kind of happened within 24 hours. Whether you believe that fully or not is uh, up to you because I think there's certainly reasons to be skeptical there. But no matter what, I think it's fair to say it probably did happen fast. And then all of a sudden, Peter DeBoer has to learn, you know, basically 23 guys on his roster and how they play, who fits well together. He doesn't know probably any of those things. I assume he has a good idea because he knows, I'm sure, what the Knights lines were in the playoffs the last two years. I'm sure he studied those meticulously at the time. But it's, of course, a different animal when you're the one that has to choose how to deploy those lines and you're making tough calls like, oh, I don't have William Carlson for the first time ever as a Golden Knight. He's hurt and I have to decide who's going to kind of play that spot. You know, these are all tricky things that Peter DeBoer's had to learn on the fly too. So I'm sure he's going to spend multiple days of this bye week. You know, you mentioned getting with his assistant coaches. I would assume he's going to rewatch these last three games the Knights played over and over just to kind of remember, okay, this is what I liked out of this guy. This is what I liked out of this guy. This is where I might tweak my lines a little bit when we're coming back from break and all that. Because I'm sure for both him and the team, I mean, these last three games are just drinking, you know, water out of a fire hose where there's so much information coming on both sides where Peter DeBoer's trying to impart, you know, a couple system tweaks just to get them thinking about it. And then the players, meanwhile, are constantly kind of giving Peter DeBoer, you know, information about them in terms of who works well with who, who likes to play a certain way in the offensive zone and the defensive zone. So there's, I'm sure, just information overload on both sides, which I'm sure, you know, they'll come back and compare notes when they get back from break. Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting, you know, one of the things that he said right away was that he was going to use those, th- those three games kind of before the break. So that's Ottawa, Montreal, Boston, kind of mainly his observation. He wanted to kind of see and learn and kind of put it out there you know, now he didn't explicitly say it's a tryout essentially, but you know, he kind of he kind of said, "Let's you know, show me what you have." So in the, in that sense, I think, like you mentioned, he's going to probably really go back, watch those three games, and and see. He's also leaned really heavily on you know the assistants, Ryan McGill, Ryan Craig, in terms of the lines, in terms of you know, kind of who skates well together, who's got some built-in chemistry and that sort of thing. I, I would imagine one line that we will continue to see is the Stasny stone Pacioretty line, but I wouldn't be surprised after that if we kind of see all sorts of shakeup. If, you know, I mean, maybe he doesn't do anything. Maybe he's kind of locked in with, you know, the, those are the, the 12 or kind of 13 forwards. But once Carlson gets back, once Cody Glass gets back, it'll be interesting to kind of see how he deploys certain people, you know, maybe Cody, you know, I, I would imagine you're going to have the same issues in terms of, you know, centers and where does Cody glass fit? Where does Cody Eakin fit? And, 
you know, all that sort of stuff that we've kind of seen, you know, all throughout the year. But, but another thing that's kind of interesting too, with all of this is that if there's one team aside from maybe San Jose that Peter DeBoer knows well around this league, it's the Knights because of how many times they've met, you know, in the regular season, the last couple of years, obviously two playoff series. So he's, you know, from the other side of things, a scouting point of view and, and all that, he's certainly broken them down. And I think has a, has a pretty good idea of, of what he's got in the room. I would imagine though, you know, within the last three games, he's probably seen some things he didn't expect, you know, maybe good and bad. And, and certainly one of the good, I think that jumps out is, is Shea Theodore. And at least in the first two games, the way he was deployed and, and really kind of leaned on heavily. I mean, he played almost 29 minutes in that game in Montreal, which is a career high. And afterward, when I kind of asked him about, you know, the ice time, he, Peter DeBoer joked, well, you know, that's the Brent Burns, Eric Carlson rule that if they're down three, nothing, Shea Theodore is going to play that much. He, he called him an elite defenseman. So that might be one of the changes that we see going forward, you know, in terms of personnel, certainly uh, Peter DeBoer hasn't been afraid, you know, when he was in San Jose to kind of rely on, on at least five defensemen. And, and if that six, one got seven minutes or so, you know, that, that was kind of a regular thing. So we'll see if things kind of veer toward that. Certainly in the Boston game, the Nate Schmidt, Braden McNabb pairing was the one that was matched up against the Bruins top line. So it, we'll, we'll kind of see, I think it's going to be situational, but yeah, for Peter DeBoer, I think, you know, to have these nine days and, and really sit down and really kind of come up with a game plan, I think is, is going to be key for him. Yeah, totally. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what his takeaways were from those three games, even more uh, than what you just mentioned there. Um, and he's going to have his work cut out for him too, and he better hope that some of his changes work because as we're talking, the Knights ultimately went 1-2-1 one, and one on their four-game trip before their bye week. That's three out of a possible eight points. They are 18th in point percentage in the NHL. They are currently in the second wild card spot of the Western Conference. They are three points ahead of the Winnipeg Jets, but the Jets have two games in hand. So still, I mean, it's still a very precarious position for the Knights. Um, while certainly circumstances have been against Pete DeBoer in terms of he had to join the team on the road and everything in some far away cities, as I mentioned, Ottawa, Montreal, I mean, Boston, who, as I've said before, Boston's one of the best teams in the league. So he's not set up for success necessarily right away, but it certainly hasn't been this big jolt that he's given the Knights either. So let's talk about some of the ways that he's going to try to give him a jolt after the break. You mentioned mixing up maybe how he deploys his defensive pairs and kind of leaning more on the top guys and maybe shielding some of the bottom guys. We've seen Derek England's ice time drop, I think, quite significantly the last three games. And with how the Knights' blue line is kind of structured right now in terms of you know, you've got, I would say, three clear-cut guys in Braden McNabb, Nate Schmidt, Shea Theodore, and three guys that are clearly a step below them after that. Maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, but the other thing that I thought was interesting from the first couple games is that Peter DeBoer, who has always been known as a good special teams coach, or his teams at the very least have had good special teams, has made some tweaks on the penalty kill. Dave, what you, can you kind of tell us about what he's doing on the penalty kill right now? Yeah, that and 
the players have even said that's probably the biggest you know tweak or change that they've undergone so far in 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 terms of the short period of time and and what he can actually kind of come in and do. So the easiest way to say it, I guess, or maybe describe it, is I guess somewhat in terms of basketball. I guess um, the when when Jared Gallant and Mike Kelly were were there running the the Knights penalty kill, they were very aggressive up the ice with at least one forechecker kind of pressuring, you know, the puck high up, and they were trying to basically kind of disrupt things create a turnover, create a shorthanded chance, just kind of never let the other team's power play kind of get into a rhythm similar to, I guess, like a full court press in basketball. What Peter DeBoer has done is basically, instead of sending that that first four checker and pressuring that puck high, is he's got everybody kind of back along the blue line. It's almost more of like, let's say, a three-quarter court press as opposed to a full court press. So he's basically kind of got guys lined up along the blue line, and what they're doing instead of challenging up high is challenging basically the zone entry as as the puck carry kind of gets to the blue line, either trying to carry or dump. That's when the Knights are, are really sort of challenging. And then once the puck gets in the zone, once the power play is sort of set up, the Knights are a little bit more passive in the zone kind of keeping their shape, keeping that box. They used to have one chaser on top, but but they usually were, were not as aggressive in the zone, and that's where Peter DeBoer has kind of amped up the pressure. It's not up the ice, it's in the zone. And the Knights are, are challenging when the puck gets along the wall. There's, there's certain kind of pressure points. When the puck gets to certain people in certain spots, it's their cue to, to really attack. And they're much more... They're much more aggressive, I guess you could say, within the zone. And certainly against Boston, it seemed to throw the Bruins' power play, which is ranked number three in the league, for all kinds of problems. They were the, the Knights, at least, were five for five. They gave up one shot on two power plays in the first period. It was actually a pretty good one by Pasternak. Then the next two, they held the Bruins without a shot on goal. It ended up being they gave up three shots on goal in the five penalty kills, which I think they would take every single time, especially against a team like Boston. It kept them in the game because that game for sure could have got out of hand really early if they had given up one or even two power play goals. So I think, you know, again, that's the biggest change and and we'll kind of see some things going forward. But Peter DeBoer's teams in San Jose and, and historically have always been good on the penalty kill. The Knights were good for the first couple months and then have really struggled you know, the last month plus, and especially in, in 2020. So that's the one area where it, at least immediately we've seen the impact. I think there are six for, for the last six. They killed the one in Montreal. They killed the five in Boston. They had given up at least one power play goal in seven previous games before that. So at least in terms of small sample size, we, we've seen a difference. And we'll see how that kind of continues going forward, I guess. Yeah, no, you would anticipate. I mean, obviously, they're going to throw up a opposing team scouting report really early on when they're making this change. But, I mean, DeBoer's, I guess, penalty kill system has certainly proven effective. The Sharks are number one in the penalty kill this season. They have been uh, the fourth best in the league since DeBoer was hired in 2015. So kind of over the long term, this has proven to be a methodology that works. And we'll see if, how quickly the Knights can end up adapting to it. Because as you said, it's kind of the opposite in 
two different aspects from what the Knights were doing in terms of what they were doing before the puck got in the offensive zone for the opposing team and then after the puck was in the zone. They're two very different things, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, what ends up becoming of that and, you know, who knows? Maybe Peter DeBoer decides to kind of switch up his penalty kill units too because he thinks certain guys are adapting better to it than others. There's kind of so much on the table right now, which is both uh, interesting and, you know, you never know how it's going to go for the Knights because obviously, just speaking from a personal perspective, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Dave, we've been used to a certain way of things for two and a half years now. I mean, the Knights have run basically the same systems outside of the defensive zone tweak that we talked about a lot in that November game against the Nashville Predators. They run the same drills in practice. They kind of conduct themselves the same way. Everything kind of had its routine. And now all of a sudden, that's all out the window for both us and obviously much more than us, the players. And so it'll be interesting to see how they handle that disruption because, I mean, we know this very well. Gerard Glant was very well liked in that locker room. Players liked playing for him. They liked having that kind of set routine. They liked knowing where they stood with him. And that's honestly something that Peter DeBoer is well known for as well. But having it come from a different guy than the guy that, you know, you really latched on to when you first came to the Knights, I'm sure is going to be an adjustment for everyone. And before we go, we should also mention that Drugland has spoken just briefly about his firing. He told the Journal Pioneer newspaper in Prince Edward Island where Gerard Glant is his home. That's where he kind of goes in the offseason. That's where he was expected to go after coaching the All-Star game this year, which, of course, he will now not be. Rick Tockett of the Arizona Coyotes has taken his place. But, I mean, Glant basically said, yeah, he was disappointed and surprised. He understands, of course, that the hockey business can get a little crazy sometimes. I think he knows that better than anyone else based on the way he was fired in Florida as well and the famous photo of him getting into a taxi cab after being fired by the Panthers. But, I mean, there's just a lot of change going on very quickly here. So it'll be interesting to see how the Knights adapt and how, you know, Gerard Gallant adapts too to kind of his newfound unemployment. Though, I mean, Adam and I both talked about it and I'm sure you feel the same way, Dave, that he's not going to be unemployed for long. No, I'll, let me go back to something real quick, and then I'll I'll get back to to Turk. Is wait till you see a practice; it is totally different. I mean, the, and, and I don't mean this in terms of like better, worse, or or anything like that. And 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 again, maybe it's just kind of situational because you know one of the things Peter DeBoer had said was that he wanted to kind of take it slow, and then right away he realized that with this group that they're able to kind of digest a little bit more and he's kind of given them a little bit more and a little bit more each time than, than he had expected to at the start. But the practices are so different, Ben. I mean, we are so used to showing up and they do line rushes at the start and we write it down and we tweet it out and maybe we see the defensive pairs and then they kind of run through their drills and, you know, maybe do a couple things or whatever. I mean, no line rushes at the start. <laughs> Those kind of come in the middle. Um, e- even the way that the line rushes are done are, are completely different. And then this is the other thing too, that I really noticed is at least kind of the last couple practices is how much situational work there's been. If, if there is an issue say that shows up in the previous game, 
they have been working on it. Where I think when Jer Glant sort of ran his practices, I think a lot of it was done behind the scenes. We didn't see a lot of like situational work in terms of, okay, if the penalty kill is struggling, well, let's go work on it for a half an hour. You know, if, if this is, you know, an area we need to do or fix or something I don't like, you know, let's go work on it. We didn't, we didn't see that a lot with, with Jared Glant practices. I think a lot of it was done kind of video and, and, and given to the players in a different way. And at least for the first couple practices, at least for the first week, Peter DeBoer has been out there and kind of saying, look, we need to work on this particular, you know, thing in the defensive zone, the weak side defenseman and rotating and whatever. And he puts them through it for five, 10 minutes. So that's been the biggest change as far as Jared Glant goes and, and kind of his future. Yeah. I, I think everybody around the league was, was generally surprised by firing. And I think everybody still maintains, you know, high regard for Jared Glant. We'll, we'll see, kind of where he lands, but he will absolutely 100% land on his feet as long as he wants to coach. And he said he did, you know, or that he, that he does. Detroit's obviously a, a natural link because of his connection there, having been a player, having been a line mate of general manager Steve Eiserman. Certainly we've heard uh, potentially Seattle being a possibility and, have heard, you know, maybe even one or two teams. I'll, I'll keep the, you know, the rumor mill quiet. I won't, I won't name anything else other than, than those, you know, the two obvious ones. I don't want to stir anything up, but I would imagine that, you know, when Glant wants to coach again, that, that he certainly will. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the practice stuff too, because yeah, it's important to note that I mean, Gerard Glant's going to be in demand. So it's not like the way he ran his practices was, wrong necessarily right. I mean, he's yeah, a really yeah. good coach peter DeBoer is i mean obviously by his track record also a really good coach the knights clearly must feel that they're making some sort of upgrade by switching from gallant to DeBoer, or they just feel like they just needed something different because this yeah. obviously is a veteran team with a lot of guys on big contracts and i mean mark andre fleury i think said it best is you can't basically change out the roster that much that's underperforming you have the only thing you can do or at least the easiest thing to do is change out the coach so that's what the knights yeah. did yeah i think in that that's probably the best way to kind of view all this in my eyes is you know th- there's a couple different ways when you feel like a team needs a jolt which is what kelly mccrimmon basically came out and said that they just felt like you know they're underachieving they didn't want the season to kind of go by the wayside i think they understand that they're their window here is pretty narrow. You know, Marc-Andre Fleury is 35. Um, you know, they got some players that maybe, maybe won't be here next year and things like that. Certainly the core, you know, is intact. But I, I think they feel like they did not want to let a chance go by. And if they needed a spark, a jolt, something, there's, there's only a couple ways to do that, really. You can kind of shake things up on a roster you know, maybe send somebody down to the minors the way that, let's say, Boston did with David Backus, um, just to kind of get everybody's attention. But I don't know that there's a natural candidate on the Knights to really kind of do that. You know, I, I, I think back to the first year when they sent down Jason Garrison and kind of buried like a three-point-something million-dollar salary down there, and everybody kind of went, whoa. Uh, I don't know that there's really a guy like that. So I don't know that that was an option. Option two would be to make a major trade. 
that's hard to do. It's yeah. I mean, I think the Knights are going to be busy here over the next month. I would expect them to go after a defenseman, uh, either somebody that can clear the front of the net or somebody who's a puck mover. I think there's a couple different ways that they could go with that, depending on who's available, but trades aren't easy to do, especially when you're trying to do something significant and it might take, you know, a, a pretty familiar name, I guess, off your roster to get something like that done. I don't know for sure, but maybe Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee's hands were a little tied at the moment in terms of being able to pull that off. And so the third option that, that you can look at is the coaching change. And we've seen it around the league. It's common kind of throughout hockey, I think, at, at just about every level, you know, to, to see coaches go in, in, in those situations. I mean, what, Jar Glant was like the 10th longest tenured coach in the league. I think he was the longest tenured coach in the Pacific Division. There's only a handful of guys really that have that, you know, have been around in the NHL the you know, last four or five years, I guess, as coaches and beyond. Third year kind of seems to be that magic number, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. Certainly is for Jar Glant. He's never lasted past, you know, his third year with, with any of the, the three franchises that he's coached. So I think Kelly McCrimmon and George McPhee kind of looked at it and said, you know, if we're going to do something, this is this is what we can do. This is the way that we can go. And certainly bringing in the coach of uh, of your biggest rival is is definitely going to be a shock to the system for everybody. Yeah, we'll see what kind of results that shock produces. As I said, the Knights just finished off their four-game road trip, 1-2-1. One, and one. They are 1-1-1 one, one, one under new coach. Peter DeBoer, they still got some ground to make up in the standings to feel, I think, confident about not only their chances to make the playoffs, but to do some damage in the playoffs. But we'll break all that down later when we talk to you guys next. I will, of course, be heading out on the road in about a week to head to that Carolina-Nashville back-to-back. That'll be my first time to watch a Peter DeBoer practice and talk to the coach himself, and I'm excited about that. Uh, But in the meantime, make sure to follow Dave at David Shane LVRJ on Twitter. He will be at the All-Star Game in St. Louis hanging out with the Knights alone representative Max Pacioretty. So there should be some good stuff there. Make sure to obviously see all of Dave's work at ReviewJournal.com. Make sure to like, subscribe, whatever you do with podcasts. With this podcast, the Golden Edge Podcast. Thanks again to SDN Sports Mobile from Station Casinos for sponsoring us. And we'll talk to you guys again real soon. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.